back to the Fourth Way Podcast. You might be able to tell by looking at the title of this episode that I am trying to be a little bit cheeky. Um, I think I just coined the term polyarchy, though I can't take credit for the novelty of the idea. The new atheists are my inspiration. One of their cheeky responses to theism is that, well, Christians themselves are really atheists, and some of the biggest atheists that there are. In fact, the early Romans thought that the Christians were atheists. The only difference between a Christian and an atheist is that the atheist believes in one less God. Now, in my opinion, I think that's pretty funny. Like, that's a, that's a uh, really creative quip. Um, but more than being funny, I think it makes a really good point to a lot of Christians who are militantly against the militant atheists. A lot of militant Christians act as though atheists are so stupid for not believing in the Christian God. How could one be an atheist over a Christian? But the atheist's point is that for all of the Christian's incredulity at the atheist's unbelief, the Christian has nearly as much unbelief as the atheist does. The atheist only has a little bit more unbelief. So what does all this have to do with Christian anarchism? I think it has a lot to do with it obviously, because I'm talking about it. Um, But I guess the way that I see it is that it seems to me that the vast majority of monotheistic Christians are really polytheistic when it comes to government. The Bible is clear that there is one God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. The Bible is clear that rulers set themselves up as gods, and they're usurpers of God. Yet, most Christians praise, bow down to, and promote these little g gods. Christians might verbalize that they're monotheists, but they act like polytheists when it comes to who rules the world and their lives. But in order to be gracious here, as well as to avoid confusion, I'm going to coin a new word. Instead of calling people polytheists for worshiping rulers, we're going to go with polyarchists. Polyarchists are people who believe in many gods in the form of kings and rulers. So let's just stop considering them gods anymore, because you'll probably disagree with that. Okay, many rulers. Contrast that with Christian anarchists, who are, really, if you're a Christian anarchist, you're a monarchist. Those who believe in one ruler, and whose mantra is, no king but Christ. Then there are, of course, the, the full anarchists who would be the equivalent of atheists, probably, where they don't believe in any rulers. Um, probably not even Christ. So with the term polyarchy or polyarchist in mind, I want to jump into today's episode. And in this episode, I am going to explore four books that I read in order to round out this season. Now, the episode's backbone will be riding on uh, C. Kevin Rowe's book, World Upside Down, which is about the political nature of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts. The second major book utilized here is entitled Jesus in a World of Colliding Empires, a book about the kingship and politics of Jesus in the book of Mark. The third book I'll be drawing from is The Kingship of Jesus in the Gospel of John, And the final book is Soren Kierkegaard's Attack on Christendom. Now, I chose these books because uh, two of the books covered two Gospels. One of the Gospels, Mark, likely being the earliest and the basis for the other Gospels. 
And uh, the other book covered John, which is the latest gospel and deviates the most from Mark. You know, it's not one of the synoptic gospels. It's it's uh, its own thing. Rowe's book uh, was selected because he began to touch on the early church by looking at the book of Acts, a book which was written by a self-proclaimed historian concerned with accuracy. I felt like these three books would provide a well-rounded view of the politics of the early church and the perceived kingship of Jesus. Then, just because I wanted to read him and because I I think he offers us a prophetic voice about the politics of the church um, in somewhat recent modernity, I went with Soren Kierkegaard's Attack on Christendom. Before we get into this episode, I think it's important to explain what I'm hoping that this episode will do. While we'll uh, certainly touch on aspects that we've already mentioned so far this season, my overall goal is for this episode to be more of a positive look at what it means to establish an alternative politic in the church. What does it look like to throw off polyarchy, to be monotheists or monarchists, and Christian anarchists? This episode is also going to be a very important one in terms of answering the two questions that we looked at in episode 17 of this season. In that episode, we looked at how Christendom answered the questions, what do we do with the fact that governments are corrupt, and two, from whence does government derive its authority? We saw how Christendom has answered these questions by whitewashing government with God. If God gives government authority, and if God makes rulers who use his name to judge evil and corruption as they see fit— then we get the Christendom of history. We get persecution of Christians by Christians, the Crusades, Inquisitions, genocide of natives and pagans, etc. But in this episode, we see how the early church might have answered these two questions had they been asked. What do we do with the corruption of governments and their usurpation of God's authority? We subvert it by refusing to call them gods and kings, while simultaneously being at peace with them and obeying where we can, recognizing that God has authority over all, even when it seems like Caesar's in control. So hopefully, this is more of a positive look at what Christian anarchism should look like. Let's jump into the episode proper by starting to take a look at Acts. Rowe, in his book, is going to argue that Acts is largely a document intending to portray the political nature of the kingdom in comparison to Rome. It's a book that is highly political in nature. Rowe writes the following, Luke's second volume is a highly charged and theologically sophisticated political document that aims at nothing less than the construction of an alternative total way of life, a comprehensive pattern of being, one that runs counter to the life patterns of the Greco-Roman world. His literary work is thus, in the terms of Francis Young and others, a culture-forming narrative. The culturally destabilizing character of the Christian mission entails the potential for outsiders to construe Christianity as sedition or treason, as indeed it was so construed. In order to counter such a perception, Luke explicitly raises these related charges and repeatedly narrates the course of events so that the Christians, here in the mold of Jesus himself, are found innocent by the Romans of seditious criminal activity. End quote. Luke is a political document about how to run community. As a counterculture within a very domineering and controlling empire, part of what's in view is the assurance that this counterculture is not seeking to be seditious. 
common claims that Christians are atheists abounded in the the Greco-Roman world. And you even see authors like Augustine writing books to defend um, Christianity against accusations that the empire is falling apart as a result of their atheism and sedition. And you have people like Tertullian defending uh, Christians not joining the army, saying, hey, look, we're going to pray for you, and trust me, our prayers do better than, than our uh, fighting would do for you because um, God is more powerful and our battle is, is really spiritual. So Luke is really doing two big things in Acts. First, he's showing believers how their community is a political one. It's a community that impacts their lives in such a central way that it seems seditious. And two, when he portrays the community's perceived sedition, he always exonerates them from the charges and shows their innocence. Yes, their community may be distinct, but it isn't seeking to attack or actively subvert the empire. Does that mean that Christians then aren't a real threat to culture because they're not seeking to subvert the empire? Here's a a quote from the book. Quote, Yet... And here we encounter a delicate distinction that must be maintained, and to which I will return more fully in the next chapter. It does not strictly follow that Roman law remains unaffected by the Christian mission. For Christianity, as Luke narrates it in Acts, is anything but a disembodied docetism in which concrete practices are elided by a purportedly higher, purer, spiritual reality. Rather, for Luke, the followers of the way inhabit the world precisely in the practices that constitute their social and political identity. Baptism is not a ruse, but a way of life. And as we saw so vividly in the last chapter, the cultural space created by this new identity simultaneously spells the possibility of pagan cultural collapse. It is to this possibility that the Roman legal system cannot remain indifferent. End quote. Christian life and community is real, yet it isn't real in the same way as Greco-Roman culture. It's real in a deeper way. Typical visions of a kingdom are physical, spatial. They're materialist notions of the world. They're physical borders. There are specific ethnicities tied to one's appearance or genetics. There's power and control domineering through physical violence. The kingdom of God incorporates the physical, as seen in baptism, communion, the holy kiss, touching and washing the feet of another, pouring oil over heads, eating together, etc. Yet the kingdom is more physically broad, incorporating all humans who want to enter into the community and proclaiming the whole universe as under the kingdom, rather than only a kingdom in arbitrary borders. But not only is the kingdom more materially and physically inclusive, but it's also inclusive of the deeper spiritual kingdom, to which the little k kingdoms are not inclusive. Another quote from Roe, which helps to elucidate this. Quote, For Luke, the kingdom is obviously not a human kingdom in the straightforward simplistic sense. And in this way, the Christian mission does not threaten Rome, as did, for example, the Parthian kingdom. Yet against every Gnosticizing impulse, The vision in Acts is of a kingdom that is every bit as much a human presence as it is a divine work. That is, the kingdom of which Jesus is king is not simply spiritual, but also material and social, which is to say that it takes up space in public. The very fact of the disturbance in Thessalonica, that this is what happens, 
attest to the public disruptive consequences of the conversions. There is no such thing, at least in Acts, as being a Christian in private. End quote. Today we dichotomize religion and state, which is something that nobody would have done until very recently in time. But that's not at all a biblical view of how the world functions. To claim lordship or power or authority over other human beings by force is to claim something which is only the Christ's to claim. We see this at least as far back as 1 Samuel 8 where God says that seeking rulers was a usurpation of his lordship. Jesus is Lord and Caesar, or the president, are not. But because we have skewed uh, this view, which separates religion from politics, we seem to think that if we avoid our nation's political system, we then are retreatists who refuse to engage in the world. I think Roe, again, speaks to this in another quote. Quote, It has often been thought that early Christianity was more about the internal state of a person than about public life. The Christians aimed to reform the heart, not the social order, runs the argument. While it is true that the early Christians did not attempt to populate local political councils or organize street protests in relation to particular social injustices, this way of thinking ultimately fails to grapple seriously enough with the final unity between theology and social life. At least according to Acts, The universal lordship of Jesus is not only about the heart, but also about the formation of a particular public. The two, in fact, are inseparable. Repentance and salvation entail a socially noticeable way of life. Put differently, the Christian mission's proclamation of the good news was simultaneously a summons to church. End quote. I think this encapsulates what Stanley Hauerwas says, and which I've referenced a number of times that the church is the politic for the Christian. A Christian who feels like a retreatist when they shift their energies from the state's politics to the church is only a retreatist if the church has been emasculated in its idolatry of the state. Early Christians in Rome had no political say whatsoever, let alone Christians in Israel and elsewhere who had no Roman citizenship and were merely conquered peoples. They changed the world not because they changed the politics of their day, but because their politics changed. Slaves, peasants, and the impoverished changed the world when they realized that they didn't have to conquer Caesar to get political power, get enough votes, or domineer another faction. They changed the world by forming a community which loved and served like Christ, which compelled genuine conversions rather than coercing feigned ones. They created their own politic, or I should say they recognized the true politic, the capital K, kingdom of God. A politic whose hands and feet are the pierced hands and feet of Christ is more powerful than one which is illegitimately handed over by Satan and rules with force. This view of politics of the church is the natural reading of Scripture as a whole, which I think I've made the case for pretty clearly this season. God is proclaimed as the sole king throughout the Bible. Empires are bad, and Satan stands behind kingdoms and rulers. There isn't a watered-down rulership here. God and God alone is king. And Roe highlights this type of thing uh, in another section of his book. Quote, Jesus does not challenge Caesar's status as Lord, as if Jesus were somehow originally subordinate to Caesar in the order of being. The thought, at least in its Lucan form, 
is rather much more radical and striking because of the nature of his claims. It is Caesar who is the rival, and what he rivals is the lordship of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet we would be mistaken were we to think that this rivalry takes place on a level playing field, an ontological basis, say, that is deeper than both Jesus and Caesar, as if there were two competitors playing for the same prize. Jesus' title is not something separable from Jesus himself, a trophy, as it were, that he wins. But in Luke's way of thinking, the title of Lord is who Jesus is. Jesus is completely inseparable from his identity as the universal Lord. Caesar's rivalry thus takes the form of wrongful self-exaltation to the sphere whose existence is exactly concomitant with the identity of God in Jesus Christ. Politics, that is, inevitably involves the question of idolatry. From the perspective of the Greco-Roman world, therefore, things are indeed upside down. Jesus' lordship is primary, ontologically and, hence, politically, not Caesar's. End quote. So I think Roe gives a fantastic look in, in uh, his book at uh, this, this politics of the church and um, the inherent politics involved in the kingdom of God and recognizing Jesus as Lord and how politics goes with idolatry when the politics deviates from the kingdom of God. I also want to explore um, a little bit into uh, the kingship of Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, into that book. And you can probably guess from the title that it talks about the kingship of Jesus in the Gospel of John, right? One of the main ideas in the book is that John is writing to show Jesus as king in a variety of ways, something that, that Roe just got finished talking about. Now, John has all sorts of titles generally attributed to Caesar, like uh, Son of God, Savior of the World, and the word for benefactor in Greek. But um, John also uses many Jewish kingly titles or attributions, like Messiah, Christ, Son of Man, etc. So the whole book of John has, at least as one running theme, the idea that Jesus is king. Like, it's all over the place. So here's an extended quote from, uh, from the book. Quote, First, various titles used throughout the gospel emphasize Jesus' identity and tasks as king. In this gospel, the unique Johannine Jesus is created by an unparalleled literary use of the Christological titles, namely by putting them in series, by synonymy, or by the employment of the various Christological titles in the same context. For example, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God, which point to Jesus as the Messiah in the following context. Then Andrew confesses to Simon that he has found the Messiah. When Philip finds Nathanael, he says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael doubts who Jesus is, saying, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? However, he confesses later, directly to Jesus, that he is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And Jesus does not rebuke him or deny his identity. Moreover, Jesus emphasizes his identity using the title the Son of Man in a statement which is reminiscent of Jacob's dream of the latter at Bethel in Genesis. Furthermore, Jesus admits himself to be the Messiah to the Samaritan woman, and she witnesses to his Messiahship to the Samaritans. Consequently, the Samaritans confess that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world, 
a term which was used of the Roman emperors. In addition, after feeding 5,000 men, the people confessed that Jesus is surely the prophet who has come into the world. About this sign, the narrator comments that the crowd's intention is to come and make him king by force, even though Jesus rejects this understanding. In the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, Simon Peter confesses directly to Jesus that he is the Holy One of God. Moreover, during a controversy in the crowd, there's a question as to whether Jesus is a good man or a deceiver. In the following dispute, some of them confess that Jesus is the Christ or the prophet, and in relation to his origin, Jesus reveals it as from above. More strikingly, the man born blind confesses publicly that Jesus is a prophet. However, when he meets Jesus after his excommunication, and Jesus reveals himself as the Son of Man, he worships Jesus in a way that people might worship or bow down to one who is God and King. His kingship is revealed more clearly as the narrative proceeds to its climax. When the Jews ask him to reveal plainly if he is indeed the Christ, Jesus reveals himself implicitly as the Christ who has power to control life and death and clearly reveals himself as the Son of God. Martha confesses directly to Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of God, when she meets him before her brother's resurrection. The multitudes welcome Jesus when he enters Jerusalem, confessing him to be the King of Israel. John is the only evangelist to include this detail. When the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, they draw back and fall to the ground when Jesus identifies himself to them, reminiscent of the way in which people fall down before God or a king. At the trial by Pilate, the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus as an evildoer and also as claiming to be the Son of God. Furthermore, when Pilate asks him if he is the king of the Jews, Jesus identifies himself as a king, although his kingdom is not of this world. Pilate refers to Jesus as the man, as well as the king of the Jews. When he is crucified, the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, is put on the cross to show, ironically, his universal kingship. After death, he's buried in a new tomb in a garden, like the burial of Jewish kings. After Jesus' resurrection, Thomas makes the climactic confession to Jesus that he is my Lord and my God, a phrase applied to Roman emperors. Finally, the author reveals Jesus' identity as the Christ and the Son of God, for which purpose the gospel has been written. Secondly, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' explicit avowals of his kingship are found. End quote. Now, going back to Roe for just a second, you know, remember that Roe said that when we talk about Jesus versus Caesar, we are talking about ontological differences here. Jesus did not gain the status of king. He is the Lagos, the creator, the sustainer, and the Lord. He is king. That is who he is. So this elevation of Jesus as king in John, uh, which lays it out very clearly, um, must not be seen as though Jesus is a co-king or a rival king as most people in Christendom make it out to be. Caesar is a usurper, as are all kings. Mark Keown, in his book, has a uh, fantastic quote where he explains, then, what the gospel is for the Christian— as specifically specifically seen um, in his book, which focuses on Mark. Now, this idea of the good news was a very specific term used for the proclamation of a victory in battle of one king over another. And in uh, Keon's book, we get to see that extension. Um, you know, we've gone from Acts 
showing that uh, the church is political to John showing that Jesus is king. And now through Mark, we're going to extend this idea of, of Christ's kingship. So the book of Mark is, is filled with this idea of the kingdom of God arriving and of Jesus being king. And so let me give you uh, an extended quote from the book here. Quote, Believe the good news has taken on a technical meaning of salvation by faith for many today. However, while this is true, as the New Testament story unfolds, it is by faith that we are saved. For the first hearers, it meant something more. It conveyed the thought that the hearer should trust in this announcement, that the kingdom of God is approaching. Or better, they should trust in the one who is establishing his reign, God. God is coming. He's establishing his sovereignty over the nations, so have faith, believe. It certainly does not yet mean trust in Jesus, as Jesus' story unfolds. This is essentially what it means. Trust in the king of the kingdom. In other words, yield to his rule and give him complete allegiance. End quote. Jesus, the one who is ontologically king, has come into the world to oust his rivals, and he will see who will declare their allegiance to him. That is the gospel. That is faith. Allegiance. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't oust kings through fear and domination. He does it through love. Because he loved us, we love him. He destroys kingdoms and powers by compelling those who experience his love to change their allegiance. This is exactly what we see from Jesus in regard to his strategy. Keon says, quote, It is the thesis of this book that Jesus' goal through these chapters was not to convince all of Israel that he is Messiah. This would excite ideas of revolution. Rather, he sought to convince his close followers of his identity as the Christ. Once they get it, Jesus will then teach them what this Messiah looks like a selfless servant who would act only out of love for others and who would die as a sacrifice to save the world, a crucified Messiah. The pattern of his life would become the pattern of their life as they take up their crosses and follow him. End quote. Jesus conquered the world through discipleship. Christ's reign comes, as Alan Kreider says, through the patient ferment of the early church. This idea that leaven works itself uh, through the dough or mustard seeds work out in the garden and, and, and uh, propagate. Christianity is potent because it doesn't mimic the state, but it mimics its true creator. It doesn't mimic violence, it mimics love. In fact, it's when it mimics and marries the state that things get ugly. Kierkegaard says uh, something that I think helps us to, uh, to, to see this a little bit and to understand um, why this concept is important. Because I think a lot of times when I talk about uh, not using the state and violence and those sorts of things, um, people, people think that it's retreatist, you know, and I, I think uh, Roe showed us that it's not. But it, it's so hard for people to grasp this idea that, well, but if I don't have the power of legislation, if I don't have the power of armies, if I don't have the power of force, aren't I being retreatist? Like, am I really doing any good in the world? And... Um, the ideal of love and the idea of self-sacrifice and those other things, the, the ideal of, can we say, cross? 
just doesn't seem very Christian to us. Um, because what good does cross do? And so I think Kierkegaard highlights something that I know we've talked about a bunch in, um, in all of our seasons and, um, and in some of our interviews. But let's let Kierkegaard talk, and then we'll, we'll kind of uh, recap and highlight what he says and why it's so important. Quote, When Christianity is served by human fear, by mediocrity, by temporal interests, yes, then it makes a rather different appearance than it really may seem as if Christianity, which with that sort of service had gradually become spavined, knock-kneed, and lame in the shoulder, a pitiful critter, might be exceedingly glad to be protected by the state and thus bought, brought to honor. In view of this, the responsibility lies with the clergy who have made a fool of the state, put into its head the notion that here was something for the state to do which may end with the state having to pay the piper because it got too highfalutin. For though it is certainly not too high for the state to patronize that sort of thing which people made out Christianity to be, yet as soon as it becomes again what it is, the state seems foolishly highfalutin and may well wish for its own sake to get down to earth again. The sooner the better. This thing of Christianity being protected by the state is like a fairy tale or a story. A king dressed as a common man lives in a provincial town, and the burgomaster is so kind as to wish to patronize that burger. Then suddenly there comes an emissary who, with a deep bow and then on bended knee, addresses this burger as, Your Majesty. If the burgomaster is a sensible man, he sees that, though well-meaningly, he was too highfalutin in patronizing this burger. Imagine, not what has been talked about so much that it has almost become trivial, that Christ returned to the earth. No, imagine that one of the apostles were to return. He would shudder at seeing Christianity patronized by the state. Just imagine. End quote. So religion that appears divine doesn't seek sanctions from the state. Those are the uh, court prophets who seek sanctions from the states. It's the wilderness prophets, the true prophets, who don't. Only weak religions seek sanctions from the states because they can't survive on their own. They can't survive uh, out of their own entity of what they truly are. They, they have nothing to hold people together. So when a religion becomes divine, it becomes incompatible with the state and the state therefore persecutes it as an alternative kingdom. And the other thing that this highlights is that, like I said, we've, we've talked about all throughout the season, and I mean season two is all about compromise and consequentialism. When, you, when, the, when religion marries the state, um, it, it doesn't get elevated. It actually gets demoted, and it becomes a compromised religion, a religion that's filled with compromises, moral compromises all over the place, and becomes um, impure. That's, that's what Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom is all about, is just how bastardized this, uh, the church of Christendom is. And it's a bastardization because of its merger with the state. So the way that this divine religion, Christianity, uh, the Christianity of Christ and the early apostles and the anti-Nicene church, the way that this Christianity thrives is through discipleship, not sacralization, not, not the sacral order. The discipling of people to seek the ideal, and the ideal is the kingdom of God. And that's something that when you marry the state and you get compromised, one of the reasons that you get compromised and problems 
is because you get consequentialism. And consequentialism is all about denying this idea that there is an ideal. Because it says, well, you know, it'd be wonderful if we could achieve the ideal. But since we can't, we have to figure out what the lesser of two evils is and go with that. Because that's reality. But true Christianity isn't about reality. It's about the ideal. I mean, you don't get I, uh, enemy love in, in reality. You only get it from somebody who's embracing an ideal. Um, thank God for that, right? Because Jesus loved us while we were his enemies. And I think Kierkegaard uncovers this uh, idea of the ideal really well. And I know we've talked about it a bunch, uh, especially in, uh, in our interview with Our Foundations, uh, the, uh, Joshua from Our Foundations. We talk about this importance of pursuing the ideal. But here, listen to what Kierkegaard says, um, and, and we'll just take this from another angle. So, quote, Take another situation. There's a proverb which says, It's a poor soldier who does not hope to become a general. So it should be. If there is to be a life and enthusiasm in an army, this proverb ought to inspire all. A poor soldier who does not hope to become a general. Rather, different is that which experience teaches from generation to generation, that out of the prodigious mass of soldiers, only a few even become non-commissioned officers. Very few lieutenants, rarely several individuals become staff officers, very seldom, by way of exception, one becomes a general. Now reverse the situation. One starts out with what experience teaches, what has been verified again and again from generation to generation. And thereupon one speaks thus, It is foolishness for a soldier to cherish the notion of becoming a general. Be content with what you are, just as we are content, content with what experience teaches, that the thousands get no further. Is not this to demoralize the army? So it is in the Christian sphere. Instead of proclaiming the ideals, they induce what experience teaches, what the experience of all the centuries has taught, that the millions get no further than mediocrity. Thus they apply Christianity as a tranquilizer, a base priestly lie, but one which pays, applying Christianity as a tranquilizer, whereas instead it is the deepest sense arousing, disquieting, they apply it as a tranquilizer. To strive after the ideals is folly, stupidity, madness. It is pride, conceit, things which are offensive to God. The via media is the true wisdom. Be tranquil. You are completely like the millions. And the experience of all the centuries teaches that one gets no further. Be tranquil. You are like the others. Will become blessed like all the others. A euphemism for... You're going to hell like all the others. But this truth will not produce money, and the other teaching pays brilliantly. End quote. Absolutely love Kierkegaard and, and his uh, sarcasm. Um, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's, that's a, a sin for me to like that, but I really do. It, it's so good. Kierkegaard gives this example of you know the military, and he's like, hey, look, um, if, if we told everybody to do what Christendom tells Christians to do and to not seek the ideal, we'd have problems, right? If you go into the army and you're like, well, I'm just going to be a private and I'm going to be cannon fodder my whole life, um, what kind of army does that produce? It produces a demoralized army because you um, resign yourself to just mediocrity and to, oh, I'm going to be a private, so I'll just act like a private. I don't have to aspire to anything greater. And you get a terrible army 
when you, when you get something like that. And you can apply that to business or whatever else, you know. Um, improvement depends on striving for the ideal. And so he's like, well, what Christendom does is it says, um, hey, look, you know, yeah, sure, there's this ideal out there, but nobody can reach it. We don't, we don't really have expectations for you. Uh, we're not really going to bother discipling you higher and higher up to the ideal. Uh, we got to compromise because that's just the way that reality works. That's, um, you know, a numbers game. So you just settle into sacralism, kind of join the club, join the millions of, of the masses, um, go to church once a week, just come on, you know, be mediocre. And he's like, that's, that's terrible. You're, you're being mediocre on your way to hell because you're not really Christians. You're not really at all Christians because you're not bearing cross. You're not being discipled. You're not growing in your faith. You're not producing fruit that uh, is the fruit of repentance. You're not uh, growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Like, what is that but being the, the types of branches that are torn off and thrown into hellfire? So Kierkegaard's straight up on that, and, and I think he makes a very good point. Seeking the ideal is huge. It prevents us from moral compromise. It keeps us from consequentialism, and it, it pushes us to do the right thing and to grow in our faith and to become more like, like Christ. Sacralism and the state do the opposite. They promote mediocrity, and they promote compromise, and they promote other lords. And unless you are a polyarchist or a polytheist, um, that's a problem. So true discipleship pursues the ideal and expects the ideal to break in. It expects us to become, to move closer and closer to being generals, or in Christianity, to move closer and closer to being like Christ. So I recommend you go back and listen to um, our our episode interviewing uh, Joshua from our foundations, as well as uh, our season on incarnation, especially when we get to the idea of reverse incarnation. This idea of seeking the ideal is huge. But for now, let's, uh, let's wrap this episode up. In the end, Christian anarchism, or if I may be so bold to say, the kingdom of God, whose sole king is Jesus, the Christ, Christian anarchism is the ideal. Most Christians today are consequentialists, and ideals are deemed as being idealistic. In the real world, one has to be an Iberian realist, not an idealist. We know that, and therefore we act accordingly. We know that the world doesn't work on ideals, and that's what it essentially boils down to. Can you believe that God sovereignly reigns as king over the universe, even when it seems like Caesar does? Can you believe that you can faithfully obey and love even in seeming defeat because you know that God governs the universe and works all things out for good? Can you do what's right because it's right, because portraying the kingdom is more important than defining good and evil for yourself? Can you throw off lesser of two evils morality which secular politics is bathed in? Can you refuse to wield the sword against the minority, against immigrants, or against other nations whom it would be nationally or personally advantageous to legislate against, oppress, or exploit? Can you serve no king but Christ? You can, but only if you're not a polyarchist. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.
This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.